0: 63 one. O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down to the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. All right, this morning we're in Exodus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. We're working our way through the book of Exodus, Redemption in the Wilderness, so you can turn there, just a few verses this morning, Exodus 2, chapter 11 through 25, and we want to place this account in history so we understand what we're talking about. Exodus occurs near the beginning of the Bible, if you're having trouble finding it, it's near the front. Exodus occurs and is telling us the history of God's people, but it's not merely the history of God's people So that we might have some interesting historical facts. God has made some promises that he intends to fulfill through the people of Israel and Exodus is telling us how he's going to do that. God made a promise to Abraham that through Abraham's seed, through a man the serpent's head would be crushed. The first mention of the gospel really in the Bible in Genesis chapter 3. God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 that he would have many, many, many children and his generations would be as a multitude as big as the sands on the seashore and that through his children the whole world would be blessed so again an, an echo of the gospel abraham through you the messiah will come to save uh, save the world from their sin and now we have an exodus these people the sons of abraham the sons of isaac the sons of jacob and they find themselves in egypt in under slavery And so the book of Exodus is not merely about how does Israel, how do the people of Israel get out of Egypt, through the desert, to the promised land. The book of Exodus is one chapter in a grand story of God telling us how he's going to provide a savior to us. And so as we're working it through, we want to continue to notice the patterns of God's work of redemption in the book of Exodus. And this morning, we want to talk about the people of Israel and their great hero, that's the title of the message, if you like titles. A great hero emerges. A great hero emerges. We like rags to riches stories. It's kind of like the American story, I think. People who make, local kid makes good. You might think of a guy like Larry Ellison. Have you ever heard of Larry Ellison? He started a company called Oracle, a little mom and pop software store. I'm being sarcastic. It's a very large company. But he had a very rough life. He, his mom couldn't raise him, his dad had abandoned him, and he was raised by his aunt and uncle. And then when he got into college, he's, of course, a very smart guy, he finally had to drop out of college in order to get a job to care for his aunt who was taking care of him. And it was finally later in life, he finally got out to California, got into a, a government contract, and started out Oracle. And now it's worth billions of dollars. He's a billionaire. Rags to riches story. It's really kind of cool, isn't it? guy using his wits and his hustle and his stick and his and he, and he makes good. And we love that kind of thing. And so we, we might think of the book of Exodus, especially as it relates to Moses as a rags-to-riches story. Moses, a baby of slaves, a cast-off in a very literal sense, at, in danger from the moment of his birth. And then through happenstance, so to speak, he's adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. And now he's living in Pharaoh's palace. And now not only that... Moses, having lived his life 40 years as a son of the Pharaoh, is now going to make good on his commitment to the people of Israel, and he's going he's to save Israel. This is a rags-to-riches story. A guy finally makes good, local kid, does great. Well, let's look at what happens. A great hero emerges. Look at verse 11 of Exodus 2, if you don't mind. One day when Moses had grown up, We'll look at it in a minute, but over in Acts 7, we discover this is 40 years. It's 40 years old now. He went out to his people. Notice that. His people who are the people of Israel. So at the age of 40, at some point in his life, he had determined, I'm not Egyptian. My people aren't the Egyptian people. My people are the Hebrew people. So he went out to his people, and he looked on their burdens. They weren't his burdens. He wasn't a slave. He lived in a palace. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. One of, what's it say? His people. So, twice in one sentence, it says his people. We have to be assured here. Moses says, I am a, a, a son of Israel, a son of Jacob, a Hebrew. So, verse 12, he looked this way and that. What does that mean? You can do that. That's what he did. Just like that. He looked this way and that way, just the two ways. He should have looked a couple of other ways. But he didn't see anyone, so he killed the Egyptian. He struck him down. He murdered him, and he hid him in the sand. Okay, this is an aside, and this is terrible. Have you ever buried somebody in the sand? I mean, not an actual body. It's like at the beach. You go to, and you're like, hey, let's bury somebody in the sand. And you get about halfway through, you're like, what are we doing? I mean, this takes a long time, it's a lot of work. I mean, yeah, there was nobody looking. When he kills the guy, but it takes a half an hour to bury a body unless you have an arm and a hang hanging out, leg hanging out. So at some point, though, somebody saw him, we discover. He didn't get away with it. So he kills this in an Egyptian, and that goes back. He's probably feeling pretty good for himself. The great hero is emerging. Here comes Moses, the savior of the people of Israel. Well, he went out the next day, probably walking a little bit like this. Here comes Moses. And he saw two Hebrews strugg- struggling together. Now, about this, the way it's worded here is it's worded in such a way it's identical to what was happening before. Before, he had an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. Now, there's a Hebrew beating a Hebrew. They're not merely struggling. One guy is wronging another guy. And he goes out, and he sees these two guys struggling. And he goes to the one who's in the wrong, the one beating his fellow Hebrew. And he says, what are you doing? Why do you strike your companion? And the guy in the wrong answers him this way in verse 14. Who made you a prince and judge over us? Are you going to kill me like you did the Egyptian yesterday? So he's caught. He's busted. Right in that moment, all of a sudden, the blood would have drained from his face and the sweat. If you've ever been caught doing something bad, no, nobody here, right? All of a sudden, you know it's out there. Oh, man, I didn't think anybody knew about that. Sweat trickles down your back. All right, what are the excuses? Uh, I didn't see him. I drive my car. I don't know what happened. Surely this thing is known, Moses discovers. In fact, verse 15 tells us Pharaoh discovered it and wanted to kill Moses. And so what does Moses do? He runs for his life to the people of Midian. A great hero emerges, fight and flight. Moses has, maybe he has in his mind this idea that he's the next Joseph. You remember Joseph? He saved Israel by rising to the highest ranks of power in Egypt and using his power and influence to save the people of Israel and really, in fact, to save Egypt in the known world from a famine. And maybe Moses had in his mind, I'm the next Joseph, the next big cheese of of Egypt that's going to save the people of Israel, and what happens? He's running for his life. Now, we shouldn't be too hard on Moses over in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24. We know that at, at the least, his heart was in the right place. This is what the book of Hebrews says about Moses. It was by faith that Moses, when he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, and he chose instead to be mistreated with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to an eternal reward. So Moses, by faith, knew he was a Hebrew and he wanted to suffer with the Hebrews, but he had somehow in his mind decided that he got to be the great hero of the people of Israel, that he was going to save them. But now he is running for his life to the land of Midian. This was important to Stephen over in Acts chapter 7. You may want to turn there because we're going to spend just a minute or two looking at this sermon by Stephen. Stephen is preaching this sermon as a defense against the Jews who felt that he was a heretic. You should know that at the end of this sermon he gave an invitation and a lot of people came forward with rocks to kill him. How often is the gospel responded to Every time it's responded to, 100% response rate, it's either believed or rejected. And this was what Stephen had to say about Moses in the last sermon he ever gave before he was killed. This is verse 23 of Acts chapter 7. He says this, When Moses was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. That's great. Seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian... He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. He supposed that Israel might say, this guy's going to save us. He supposed wrong. On the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling, and he tried to reconcile them, saying, guys, brothers, why are you wronging each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me like you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. See, the people of Israel were smart in Egypt. They knew that if Moses came in, making a bunch of business with the Egyptians, what's going to happen? Life is going to get harder, not easier. If the Egyptians get riled up, they're just going to make the Hebrews' lives harder, We know this is true because later on when Moses returns to Egypt and he confronts Pharaoh, what happens? Pharaoh says to the Hebrews, you know, I've got an idea. You've got a lot of bricks to make. But you know what? I'm tired of supplying you with straw. You've got to now supply your own straw by walking all over the countryside collecting it to make your bricks. But your quota of bricks will not be reduced in spite of the fact that you have more work to do. Suck it up, buttercup. I don't think you said that originally, but... The Egyptian is hard to translate there. Um, The people of Israel did not like this. Moses, knock it off. Life is hard, but let's not make it harder. So they thrust him aside. Israel wanted freedom from their slavery. Listen, we're going to discover this. They didn't necessarily want God. Israel wanted freedom from their slavery, freedom from their burdens, but they didn't necessarily want God. God. Look at verse 35 of Acts chapter 7. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who has made you a ruler and a judge? This man, God, sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. The fact is, Moses was sent to them as their Savior, as their redeemer, and they rejected him. How many times did Israel reject Moses? It's hard to keep count. What day is it? They only rejected him on days that ended in Y. They rejected him when he first came. And he fled for his life. They rejected him when he came again. And they said, Moses, knock it off. They rejected him out in the wilderness. Look at Exodus chapter 16, verse 3. Exodus 16, verse 3. They had wandered out in the wilderness following Moses and Aaron. Aaron? and they get out there and realize what nobody packed a lunch the people of Israel said to Moses and Aaron oh would that we had died by the hand of the lord in the land of egypt what do we call that looking back to the good old days it was so good back in egypt in fact listen we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full oh egypt was so great it was like having a campsite in hometown buffet I mean, sure, they worked us to death. Sure, they separated us from family. Sure, they would beat us for no reason. But meat pots. They rejected him there. They rejected him later when they ran out of water. They rejected him later again when they ran out of water again. They rejected him when he went out up on Mount Sinai to get the law. What would they say to Aaron? We don't know what happened to Moses. He's been up on that mountain for 40 days. You know what you ought to do is make us an idol. We'll worship it and have a party. They rejected him then. They rejected him every time they encountered any kind of difficulty. Snakes in the sand. They rejected him because his wife was a Cushite. They rejected him when they faced other enemies. Moses was rejected by the people over and over and over and over again. Because Israel wanted freedom from slavery, they did not want God. Israel cried out to God because of their suffering. But notice what they didn't pray for. Early in the book of Exodus, they never pray for God, show us how to worship you. Did they know how to worship him? No, the law hasn't been given yet. God, show us how to be in your presence and be saved from our sin. Did they ever ask for that? No, just get us out of this slavery. God, show us where you would like your dwelling to be. Maybe you would like a tabernacle of some sort. Did they ask for that? No, God, just get us out of this slavery. Israel didn't pray for the tabernacle. Israel didn't pray for the law that they might know how to worship God. All they prayed for was freedom from their suffering, but God was doing something much bigger than simply trying to make their lives better. Israel wanted God only if you he would help in the specific ways they expected God to help. If God does everything you ever wanted in the way you want it, guess what? He's not God You are. Let me let you in on a little secret. I don't want you to feel bad about this. It's true for all of us. You're not very good at being God. People of Israel rejected leaders throughout their history. They rejected their kings when they led them towards uh, the Lord. They rejected their judges. They rejected Moses. They constantly did this because... They continually felt that the people sent to deliver them were delivering the wrong things. Kings, judges, prophets kept being sent to them to deliver them from their separation from God into the presence of God, and they didn't want that. They wanted their problems to go away. So Moses says this in Deuteronomy 18, 15. You might want to turn there. He finally comes to the realization that Israel is never going to accept him as their redeemer because he is never going to provide the kind of help that they're looking for. This is what Moses says to the people of Israel at the end of Deuteronomy. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord, may God, uh, my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth. He shall speak to them all that I command him. Whoever will not listen to my words that he speaks to them, I myself will require it of them. Who was that prophet? Jesus, and that's why Stephen Stephen was preaching that sermon. He said, listen, folks, they rejected Moses. The greater prophet has showed up, and now you're rejecting him too. Because he didn't save you from Rome. Instead, he died on a cross. So once again, this pattern of how God intends to work is to redeem us from what matters, not redeem us from the little things that we're very concerned about. And when God does that, we tend to get very frustrated. So Moses runs, and he hides in the land of Midian. Because he thought he was the great hero, he ends up running for his life. He's not the hero he thought. And in fact, the people for a time lose their deliverer because he is not the hero that they want. Okay, one little thing before we move on to this next part of this. There's a very, very simple way to sort of apply this. Don't miss Jesus. And the way we miss Jesus by following the pattern of the people of Israel is this. Is we have a lot of stress, a lot of stuff in our life that is really awful. And some of it, like, isn't just sort of awful. It's like really, really bad end of the world kind of stuff. The danger is in the midst of the most difficult things of life is we miss Jesus. Because we become convinced unless this thing goes away... Jesus isn't who he says he is. And it just might be that Jesus is everything he has said he is, even in the midst of that terrible trouble. One of the dangers of suffering and difficulty in life is we will miss Jesus because we will decide he's kind of a jerk. And if Moses is a pattern for us, which he is, and if Christ is who he says he is, which he is, Jesus can redeem the most important thing, even in the midst of the hardest troubles we might face don't miss him even in the hard stuff all right moses couldn't save the people of israel obviously at this point so what should he do look at verse 16 of exodus chapter 2 exodus 2 back in exodus 2 verse 16 a great hero emerges provides help and is humiliated so he went to midian and he sat down by a well he was thirsty Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters and they were going out to the well in order to water their flocks. They were shepherdesses. And then what would happen is they would go to the well to water their flocks and the other shepherds, the men shepherds, would come and they would harass these seven daughters of the priest of Midian. In fact, they would run them off. You don't get to be here at the well. This is a man's well. We do man's stuff. Go away. Go away. Moses is gonna have this. So Moses, this kind of hardwired into him as this helper, savior, superhero, he drives away the other shepherds. He drives them all away, and he goes gets the other shepherdesses, and and not only does he say the well is safe now, he even waters their flock for them. He says, Come on over, take a break. You've had a hard day, this has been kind of stressful. Moses then waters all of their flock for them, and then they return home, and their father says to him, why are you back so early? Normally you go there, and then you have to wait far away until the men are all done watering their flocks, and then you go and get to water your flock. Usually it's much later in the day. And they say, well, hey, we met this guy, and he saved us from the other shepherds, and he, watered our flo- he even watered our flocks. That's how it's worded in there. They, I mean, he didn't have to water our flocks. He even watered our flocks. And the dad says, would you invite him over for dinner? Oh, I didn't think of that. Well, go get him. guy with seven daughters, he's like, I found one guy. God, ladies, keep your eyes open. I don't know if that's what he's saying, but probably was. Those nomadic cultures, the guy walks by, there, get that guy. All right. So he invites him home, and in fact, it says that Moses contented himself to dwell with the man, and in fact, Moses married his daughter Zipporah, and she gave birth to a son, and Moses called his name Gershom, for he said, "I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. I don't have a home. I'm an illegal alien, never to have a legal residence. I'm a Hebrew, and the Hebrews have rejected me. I am an Egyptian." And the Egyptians want to kill me. I'm just some guy in the desert now. I don't even know that I matter. Moses is still a hero. He's still a helper. But now he discovers exactly what he is capable of doing. First of all, is he capable of saving Israel from Egypt? No. Total failure. But he can save shepherds. Seven of them. How do you think he's feeling right now? He's lived 40 years of his life in the highest halls of power in the most powerful nation on planet Earth. And now he discovers his skill set is he can save seven shepherds. I mean, maybe that was nice of him, but he's going, what's that mean? See, this story is not a rags-to-riches story. This is a riches-to-rags story. This is a guy who had everything and realized he had nothing He was rejected by Israel, and in fact, Moses is discovering in this that he's not very strong. He's not the big stuff he thought he was. He thought he had it handled. He thought he had it nailed. He had all the answers. He knew what was up, and now he's feeling pretty good. I mean, he saved those seven ladies. A great hero emerges. He provides help, but he is humiliated, and this is what needs to happen to Moses because we're going to discover the work God is doing through the people of Israel and finally through Christ is a story of help coming through humiliation. This is a pattern God is establishing in his scripture to show us help is coming from the humiliated, not the glorified. Look at John chapter 1, verse 10. John chapter 1, verse 10. The gospel writer says this about Jesus. Jesus was in the world. The world was made by him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. It shouldn't surprise anybody on reading this. You say, oh, I've heard this plot line before. I know how this works. That sounds just like Moses. Because God has already established that he is going to bring deliverance, not through the powerful and mighty and glorified. He is going to bring deliverance through the low and the humiliated. Jesus, like Moses, was rejected by Israel. In fact, he was rejected by all of us. And so, in fact, now he goes to the foreigners, not the religious, not the elite, not the powerful, not the spiritual. Instead, he goes to who? You and me. Dirty, rotten sinners. And he says, I who knew no sin will become sin that you might have the righteousness of God in me, that you might be blessed in receiving salvation even in your Sin. Look what the Bible says about Jesus in Hebrews chapter 2. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to read it relatively quickly. The Bible says this. Jesus had to be like his brothers, like you and me, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God in order to pay for our sins because he himself suffered so that he can help us who suffer. So Jesus comes and is rejected, and he comes and he suffers that he might provide help for those who suffer because his humiliation and his suffering was the path in order to provide his salvation to us. Jesus and his family early in his life had to flee from Herod down to Egypt, and Hosea the prophet predicted that saying, salvation will come out of Egypt, out of Egypt I will draw my son. And the gospel writer Matthew in chapter 2, verse 15, affirms that, saying, Hosea said, out of Egypt the Savior will come, and he did. Jesus is following the pattern of the plot line that God has been telling all along. The rejected rejected Savior, the humiliated Savior, exactly the Savior that we need. Why does this matter? 1 Peter 5, 5 says this. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with what? Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The reason this is important to us, if we see how God is doing his work of salvation through all of history, salvation through the humiliated, salvation through the suffering, when we then participate with Christ in his redemption, we are putting him on not as a cloak of glory and pride, but as a cloak of what? Humiliation. Because this is one of the key characteristics of those who are in Christ as we participate with Him in His humiliation. Just a couple of other verses I'll read quickly to remind us of this. One is on Isaiah chapter 61. The prophet said this, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. That's fantastic. Paul, in the book of Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, sort of echoes Isaiah. And he says this, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ like a cloak, We've said this many times. When you stand before the Lord, do you want him to see your righteousness? Absolutely not. Your righteousness is awful. And I'm being polite. The Bible describes it as dirty rags. We'll leave it at that. What he says is we put on Christ, we stand before the Father. Whose righteousness does he see? The righteousness of Christ. So we put on Christ so that there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor fee- me fail, female, me fail, yeah, me failed. That's right. All right. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offerings, heirs according to his promise. To put on Christ is to put on his righteousness. To walk with Christ is to wear his humiliation. A key characteristic of one who is in Christ is humiliation. I'm not saying you need to be humble. Humility is the one thing that you lose as soon as you discover you have it. Think about it. If you're humble, you have no idea. Certainly would seek by the Spirit, by His Word, by prayer, that God would make us like Christ in humility. But humility is not one of those things you can work hard and do. Thankfully, God's not going to worry about whether or not you can be humble. He's going to take care of that for you. He's going to give you the joy of being like Christ by humiliating you. See, what's problem is when we hear that word, we think that's a, a negative deal. Like one person putting themselves above you and humiliating you so that they might have their own glory, and that's not what God is doing. That's, not a, that's how a sinner would humiliate somebody. God humiliates us so that we might look more like Christ, so that we might glory more in Christ and less in ourselves a great hero emerges. Moses is finally getting ready to be able to do God's work because Christ has humiliated him. He now has the the power to save seven shepherdesses. That's not varsity-level rescuer. A great hero emerges, help and humiliated. question is then, how do we make it? How do we make it? This life, you know, it it can be kind of long. I mean, the longer you live it, the shorter it gets. Think if I did the math right. But sometimes the suffering can be a lot. And you say, you know what? I don't know if I'm going to make it. I don't know if I'm going to be able to stay faithful to Christ through this stuff. How do we make it? How do we make it to the end with Christ through suffering, through through humiliation? How do we find strength? Well, let's look at the last couple of verses of Exodus chapter 2, verses 22 through 25. Exodus 2, verses 22 and 25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. We know Moses was in the land of Midian for 40 years. And during those days, while he was gone, the king who wanted to kill him died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. A great hero emerges. Where does this leave Israel? Suffering. Their hero Moses is gone, he's humiliated, they've rejected him. What do they do now? This is what we discover here is God saw. God heard. God knew. The fact is, what we have to understand about Moses is he is not the great hero of this story. Moses is a terrible hero. A great hero is emerging, and the hero of the people of Israel, and the hero of this story, and the hero of our story is God, because he hears us, and he knows what's going on on the most intimate details of our life. Look what David said in Psalm 51 when he was confessing his adultery and murder to God. Psalm 51, you're familiar with it, but I'm going to read it all the same. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love and according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. So he wants God's forgiveness. And how, what kind of forgiveness does he want? He wants God's forgiveness calculated according to God's loving kindness. He doesn't say calculate my forgiveness based on my ability to make it up. He doesn't say calculate my forgiveness based on my ability to earn your favor. He doesn't say calculate my forgiveness based on anything other than God. I want you to calculate my forgiveness based on how much you love me. Why does he do that? Because God loves David more than David sinned. How do you, do, how do you figure? Well, here's it. David sinned $100 worth of sin. I know it was more than $100. So like, 125, but we'll just round it. He says, God, I owe 100 bucks. Would you forgive my debt in accordance with the fact that you have a billion dollars? See what he did? See if he said, if you would forgive my sin in accordance with the fact that I have $75, David's going to be left owing 25. What he does instead is say, God, would you forgive me according to the fact that your loving kindness far exceeds any of my rebellion and disobedience? Will you, in fact... Deal with me according to your mercy, not according to anything to do with me. Because David knows something about God. He understands that God's mercy and His love and His nature is one to wash away our sin because He loves and He offers mercy. Look at verse 24 of Exodus chapter 2. This is exactly what God says. He says this, if I can find it. God heard their groaning and He remembered... You know, this is a pretty spiritual group of people. I should should do something for them. They help old ladies across the street. They're Eagle Scouts. They read their Bible like twice a month. They're amazing. He didn't say that, did he? And God heard their groaning, and he remembered what? His promise. He said, I made a promise to them. I don't care what they're doing. I made a promise and my promise was to Abraham and it was to Isaac and it was to Jacob and it's to all of these people. I told them that I would redeem them. I would save them from their from their slavery and take them to a promised land. I'm going to save these people in spite of the fact of what they're like. They're not even asking for me. I'm going to save them anyway. As Christians, that should in fact be comforting. Sometimes we do things wrong. I mean, just every now and then. Every day. And sometimes we confess our sins because we really want a relationship with God. Other times we're confessing our sins just because we feel guilty. We want things squared away with God because I don't want to feel ashamed. That's kind of self-serving. God's like, am I a part of this picture or you just don't want to feel bad? And what does God do when we confess our sin to Him, when we come to Him with these things that are self-serving? Does He go, well, I'm not going to listen to you. Harumph. He says, I made a promise to you. And that promise is in the blood of Christ, if I remember communion right. And that promise was, I will never leave you or forsake you because Christ has washed away all of your sin. I am here, and I will hear you in spite of the fact that you've got a terrible attitude. His promise is, will be fulfilled in us, not because we have the ability to unlock the secret combination of how to make God happy with us. His promise will be fulfilled in us to save us and take us to glory because He's a promise-keeping God and He loves us more than we disobey. God remembers His covenant. He remembers His people. He remembers His promise and He cares. Look at Matthew chapter 10, verse 29. Jesus tells us this because it's critically important in understanding a relationship with him. Matthew chapter 10, verse 29, Jesus says this, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? I have no idea if they are or not. You could Google it. That seems like a pretty good price, actually. I actually have no idea what you'd do with a sparrow, but I assume it had something to do with their temple worship. Not one of them will fall to the ground. How many sparrows do you get for a penny? Two. So what's the value of one sparrow? Hey, penny. Half a penny falls off a tree branch in the woods. Nobody's around, hasn't been in that section of the woods for a thousand years. That half penny bird falls to the ground dead. God knows all about it. He saw it coming. He knew it was coming. He's like, ah. Well, that's the way that goes. Not one of them falls to the ground apart from God. God knows every detail of even the smallest, most worthless bird in the forest that no one has ever seen. But listen to what he says about us. Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. We've said this before. For some of us, that's not a big deal. Well, congratulations. One. <laughs> Somebody's saying, what he is saying is, I know the, the smallest, most minute detail about you, and not merely to be able to recall facts. He says, man, can you believe I gave you that much hair? Can you bl- look what I did in you. He glories in how he made us. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Thank the Lord he didn't say this. Fear not, now you won't have any trouble. That's not what he said. He said, don't worry about it. God knows every minute There's not one minute of suffering that you have endured. God hasn't said, I knew exactly what's going on. I feel every bit of this that you are feeling. I know what is happening. A great hero emerges for God's people and for us. God hears us, and God knows what's going on. God knows what is going on in our life, and he has compassion on us that cost him the life of his son, Jesus. The fact of the matter is for suffering in our life, it is not an if we will suffer. In fact, the question is not even whether or not uh, we will suffer well or how we will suffer. The bigger question is this, does God see my suffering? Does God know what's going on in my life? And if Hebrews 2.18 is true, which it is, he knows it precisely and he has been through it before. He suffered exactly as we have suffered that we would know exactly what it's like. Have you ever gone through something hard and gone to your buddy and you're trying to explain to them what's going on? They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I get it. That sounds tough. And it's kind of hard because you can tell they don't get it, right? You don't get it. I mean, you're being polite. You're not rude to your friend. Well, I mean, you might be. I mean, I don't know. It's your deal. But what we're learning ab- from, about our Savior, Christ, is when we say, this is what's going on, he goes, oh, man, I have been there. You're right. That is awful. I know exactly what that is like. He suffered exactly the way we have suffered so that he can help us not merely be delivered from our suffering, but like with Moses, so that he can glory in how he's going to work in us in our weakness and our humiliation. Some of the greatest things that God will accomplish through you are not things you have done. They will be accomplished during illness, they will be accomplished during poverty. They will be accomplished during discouragement. They will be accomplished when you have felt abandoned. Because in your weakness and in your humiliation, you will cry out to God and say, God, do you know and do you hear? And God will say, I do, and I have work in you. This goes contrary to how we want things to work, and in fact, it goes contrary to how the world works. One author said it this way about our walk with Christ in light of Moses' relationship with God. We should see in our daily walk, and we should consider our daily walk in light of the humiliation and victory of Christ. We should see our daily walk with him in light of Christ's humiliation and his victory. Is it possible for a Christian to fail ultimately? No, Christ has had victory. As a Christian, will you be humiliated? You better hope so. Because that's the pattern of God's most powerful work in the lives of His children. Listen, I'm not saying it's fun. We all want to be Captain Amazing. Maybe you don't want to be Captain Amazing, but that's just a little CEA on my chest and a cape. But that's not how God's going to work in us. He's going to drive us to the end of our rope He's going to push us down into the places we didn't want to be. And in those moments, we will say, God, do you hear? Do you know? And he says, I do, and I hear you. And get ready. Some powerful things are going to be done in your life. Stephen preached one of the most powerful sermons in all of history. And the result of that sermon was what? His death and a massive persecution broke out in that area. And you say, well, that was a failure. You should have toned down the religious rhetoric a little bit. No, that was the power of God unleashed. It's hard for us to see it and understand it, but that's exactly what was going on here. Okay, three things, and we'll be uh, we'll wrap up with these things. A great hero emerges in regard to Moses' fight or flight. We already mentioned it, but it's worth worth remembering. Don't miss Jesus the way Israel missed Moses. The Bible tells us in Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God for salvation for all those who will believe. Here is the question you need to ask yourself to help wonder whether or not we could miss Jesus. In this moment, right now, what do you want to be saved from? If it isn't sin and death, that's not what he came for. I know it's hard. He came to save us from sin and death to the glory of the Father, we might live with him forever. And in the midst of that salvation, we might uh, experience a lot of different things in this life. But we want to be saved from a lot of other things, too. We want to be saved, saved from unemployment, saved from fighting in our family, saved from bad health. We want to be save, saved from a car that keeps breaking down. And that's exactly what Israel did, and they missed Moses. What do we want to be saved from? If it isn't sin and death, we run the risk of missing Christ's work in our life. A great hero emerges. Moses is a helper and he's humiliated. So let's just be reminded of this. To know and walk with Christ is to wear the garments of humility, to wear the cloak of humiliation. That is not merely to be humble. That means walk around. No, I'm not as awesome as I seem. But to remember that Christ is glorified when he uses us in our weakness and in our humiliation. The world says, you got to look good. you got to be competent. you got to be confident. You've got to have your act together. You've got to be dialed in. And Jesus uses the weak and the humble. It reminds me of Paul talking about his friend Apollos. Paul had some things going for him as a public speaker. He wasn't a good speaker. He was short. He was ugly to start with. And then he got stoned and beaten with rods a few times, so it's kind of like he fell out the ugly tree and hit every branch on the way down. And then he gets up to preach a sermon, and he's a stammering and stuttering fool. And if you think I'm kidding, read Corinthians. Apollos could get up and read the phone book, and the church will get saved. And Paul says, God has seen fit to glorify himself through my weakness. And because of that, I will boast in only one thing, the cross of Christ. He saved me, a sinner. We are not just to be humble, although we ought to be. We must recognize Christ is glorified in us through our humiliation, and that's a good thing. Finally, God hears and God knows. This is probably the most important thing you need to think about. There is not one moment, one second of your suffering that God has missed. He has known and felt and experienced every single second of it. He knows, he sees, he hears. In fact, this is important. At the end of all things, every bit of it will be accounted for. There is not one injustice, injustice. Not one unfair thing in your life that will not be made up for in glory. It will all be accounted for. I want us to keep this in mind as we work through the book of Exodus, and we're going to end with this. A great hero is emerging in the book of Exodus. It is not Moses. It is the God who saves